Hello, everyone. This is the latest installment in our low oil price mini podcast series. Today, we will be looking specifically at how oil price creates supply chain pressure points and what is being done and what can be done to alleviate them. I am Karan Talwar, an associate in our engineering and construction disputes practice based in London. I'm joined by Emma Shasma, a partner in the same practice group in London, and Craig Shepard, a partner in our Tokyo disputes practice. So why don't we start off by asking the burning question, how has the supply chain to the oil and gas industry been impacted in recent times? Do we see the recent downward pressure on price as having a major impact? Well, thanks, Karen. Yes, the answer is is most certainly yes. We've had an unprecedented situation in the oil and gas market. So a supply and demand shock at the same time. So supply in terms of the oil price crisis pre-COVID and then a huge drop in demand due to COVID. Um, and demand has still not fully recovered. So we will likely see suppressed pricing continuing. The dip in the price of crude oil has had a significant impact on the oil and gas industry as a whole, and discretionary spend is, of course, down. Um, IOCs and NOCs are looking to conserve capital and reassure shareholders of their ability to tide over the crisis. And we are seeing new projects are being put on hold, and by some estimates, global investments in exploration and production are expected to fall by some 100 billion US dollars in 2020, or 17% below last year. It's widely reported that large multinational oil companies are introducing spending cuts of around 20% on average in their global operations, which of course includes the existing supply chain. The extent of which the supply chain can bear those costs really depends on a number of factors. There was actually a really interesting white paper by Jim Pierce and his team at Curley, where they looked at the leverage and backlog ratio of suppliers and those that are highly leveraged with a short backlog of contracts are most exposed. And we see this in a number of offshore drilling contractors that have filed for Chapter 11 since the pandemic hit. So Diamond Drilling, Noble and uh, Valaris. Thanks, Emma. So you, you spoke about some cuts to the supply chain. C- could you tell us a bit more about what types of cuts we're seeing? Well, yes. I mean, in many ways, the current scenario isn't very different to what we saw in the years following the 2014 oil price crash. So the service sector was the first port of call for price savings then, as it is now. The oil majors reduced unit development costs by 55% between 2014 and 19, and almost half the rate cuts coming from the supply chain. The cuts we're seeing now are both to expenditure, so CAPEX and OPEX, and to the scope of activities performed by supply chains. However, the supply chain was already somewhat on its knees from the 2014-15 shock when the current price was hit. And the majors are aware that they have to treat this crisis differently if they want to ensure a strong supply chain moving out of the crisis. Well, in that background, Emma, so are there any key lessons from 2014 that we uh, should be aware of? Mm, Absolutely. The current situation is perhaps more complicated than it was in 2014 for the supply chain, given the logistical difficulties in the movement of labour and manufacture and improvement, uh, sorry, movement of equipment imposed by COVID-19, of course. And as I mentioned, the industry is operating on slim margins and finding it tough to meet existing commitments and budgets, let alone dealing with expenditure cuts. Indeed, what we're seeing is that whereas in the 2014 and 15 crisis, the oil majors and tier one contractors took a sledgehammer to prices and at the same time trebling payment periods from, let's say, 30 days to 90 days, 
there's an acknowledgement that there's simply no margin left for such widespread cuts across the board. So supply chain companies also have to deal with higher interest rates. Aggressive price cuts could see several companies go under in the short term and impact industry in a big way. We're talking widespread supply chain distress here and not just the sporadic instances of supply insolvency that operators are typically used to. If price and activity cuts continue to be rolled out, some reports suggest that nearly 40% of sub-suppliers for Tier 1 suppliers may face bankruptcy. Emma, I agree with with all of that. I think the market is starting to realise that the traditional cost-saving measures, which we saw in 2014, are not necessarily the best thing for the overall health of the sector. And so the action that we've seen this time around is perhaps a bit more sophisticated. In 2014, there was, Emma, as you highlighted, instant and very, very serious pressure applied to the supply chain to cut prices. This time round, it's a bit more nuanced, but I don't want to give the impression that that does not mean that there are pressures and there are price cuts. There there most certainly are. We've still seen bankruptcies. We've still seen Chapter 11 filings. And I think it would be quite wrong to give the impression that attitudes have completely changed. But things are a bit different. And I think the first difference I would highlight is Operators seem to be taking more of an interest in the financial health of the supply chain, particularly in the business critical supplies, uh, subsea services, some of the uh, logistics, for, for example. I don't mean to suggest that their interest is necessarily of a bleeding heart nature. It's, it's not. But operators are looking to get in specialist expertise to monitor health of the supply chain on an ongoing basis and try to make sure that their own interests are preserved by making sure that they manage to keep suppliers afloat. I think the other key difference is that operators and suppliers are actually talking to each other. The impact of COVID, the impact of low oil prices It's been global. It's impacted everyone. It's impacted everywhere. And I think that makes it easier to have a conversation which is at least reasonably open, if not completely candid. I think we're also seeing operators starting to get a bit more creative with the measures they're they're deploying. Some of it is is pretty simple stuff. So paying on time or, or vaguely on time and extending lines of credit to the supply chain. Um, but some of it is a bit more a bit more novel. We have seen operators looking at options like working with others to bail out significant players in the supply chain, perhaps resolving issues through trying to improve the cash flow for suppliers or de-risk things for suppliers by uh, the operators themselves entering into raw material supply agreements. We've seen operators actually lobbying for exemptions and support packages with relevant governmental and, and other authorities. I don't want to suggest that there is no longer competitive tension. There absolutely is. But I think it's fair to say that we're perhaps seeing a bit more of a team than we've we've seen before. And what we're seeing, I think, goes beyond simple 
friendly operator supplier uh, relationships and into something that actually is strategic alliancing. The term strategic alliancing has been used forever, uh, but it's a label that gets bandied around rather than a concept that one actually necessarily sees in practice. And I think we're starting to see it, sometimes for specific geographies, sometimes for a specific project, but it's not just a label, and it is a real tool that people are using to try to keep companies and projects afloat. Yes, and and I agree, Craig. Look, um, you know, operators have have to be uh, creative. Um, I mean, finding solutions to to these problems, and they need a reliable supply chain in the in the short term. But they also realise the need to adapt their operations in the longer term um, to the new status quo of of oil price in the region of of uh, forty US dollars a barrel. And we have already seen a marked shift in IOCs trying to help critical suppliers through through the crisis, particularly through through developing these strategic alliance arrangements that you mentioned. And NOCs are also becoming more progressive uh, in this area too. And the thing is, is with these strategic um, alliance arrangements, the focus is really shifting from price to value. So really looking at the quality of the service provided that's driving the price. And operators are evaluating long-term strategic partnerships with a few key suppliers um, across supply service categories to ensure consistency in supply and lower costs in the long run. And this may need some support from governments in terms of easing competition requirements, but it's certainly a step forward in creating a more stable supply chain. That's very interesting insight. Uh, thank you both. Could we now focus on um, the existing contract arrangements between the operators and the supply chain? What sort of impact are these expenditure cuts having on the existing contracts? I, I can answer that in one word, devastating, but I, I suspect you actually want me to say a little bit more than that. If you look at a standard contract logic, for example, it's a pretty straightforward pricing mechanism. The price to be paid set out in the pricing schedule. Schedule identifies a price for different elements of the work. It identifies rates. And there's a price adjustment mechanism. And that price adjustment mechanism can pick up uh, market movements and the supply of raw materials. When variations are instructed, the price can be changed. Speaking as a disputes lawyer, Price adjustment mechanisms work best when the change in scope or the market movement is relatively small. Uh, it's an adjustment mechanism. It's not a rewriting mechanism. And when the scope of work becomes radically different or the prices become radically different, that really does stress the mechanism and sometimes it stresses it beyond breaking point. When items are removed from uh, scope, typically the contract provides for a variation to be issued. Uh, that variation is then uh, to be valued at appropriate rates set out in the contract. Now, sometimes the contract isn't entirely clear as to the rates and there's a fair valuation set. Uh, if a fair valuation to be set, then there is, of course, room for dispute between the parties. But even when you don't have that issue, the scope of the variations and the impact they have on the contract price can be hugely contested between the parties, especially when people are cash strapped. And 
when you've got a pricing mechanism used and a major de-scoping, that can actually undermine the financial viability of the whole contract with the supplier just unable to recover his fixed cost without sufficient balance of work remaining. The supplier will have allocated risk through the uh, various prices in the contract. Uh, and of course, this becomes a particular problem if much of that is then removed. Uh, Craig, yes, indeed. And certainly we do see the traditional lump sum and cost plus contracting methods tend to result in more adversarial practices between the supplier and employer. So if we look at, you know, lump sum contracting, for example, it's very common to see lowballing on the contract price and then the contractor or the supplier looking to recover the shortfall through through the variation mechanism, which you've just said, can be very adversarial. Um, and similarly, if we're looking at you know a cost plus contract, in many ways that can incentivize rework. So in this downturn, rather than looking at blanket cost cutting solutions or trimming further off suppliers already thin margin, we are seeing a greater focus, and particularly amongst the IOCs on conducting analytics on each cost item to see how cost savings can be achieved based on the market price of particular materials or commodities. So adopting what's called a should cost model. Here you, you used uh, data around market forces to determine whether particular savings can be made from particular products. So for example, if certain raw materials are now cheaper, then those particular prices can be dropped without affecting the supplier's margin. And as we've noticed, um, alliancing and strategic contracting is focused more on values-based uh, pricing rather than traditional time and cost-based pricing. Well, it sounds like there's, uh, you know, several issues that uh, you know, operators and, and suppliers need to be mindful of, and especially with the operators, because there are decisions for them to take. In that context, are there any trends that we're seeing with operators trying to meet their ESG obligations? Um, so, I mean, the, their environmental, social, and governance obligations, or are we seeing that these are now slowly taking a backseat? Absolutely not. ESG has been critical for a long time and it is becoming in my view ever more important uh, i think the focus has been on the the e in esg the environmental measures in in recent weeks we've seen total with the uh, pressure from shareholders uh, pushing for it to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, in August, BP announced a tenfold increase in its spend on low carbon. So that the environmental focus is, is very real and is every bit as live today as it was as it was yesterday. I really don't think there's any prospect that momentum will be lost. In fact, in the market we're seeing at the moment, in the wake of COVID-19, environmental concerns are now very high priority. Uh, we just need to turn on the television and you see the wildfires that are ravaging the west coast of the US. It's beyond the scope of me and this, this podcast to try and speculate as to what the implications of that will be on the US election and on uh, US policy. But environmental issues are, you know, making headlines worldwide. 
And of course, social issues are making headlines worldwide like never before. I think it's very likely that these are going to factor into the longer term discussions that operators have with suppliers. Everyone is concerned about share price. Everyone is concerned about the views which investors take. And investors are now looking to score businesses against the ESG ratings. And these things are going to be very, very important. So I think operators will have to remain mindful. Uh, the supply chain is going to have to meet ESG criteria. Operators are going to have to support that. And if there are changes due to um, insolvencies or termination, these issues will remain. Issues around supply chain diversity and the optimum mix are going to remain re uh, very relevant. ESG is going to be critical. So it certainly sounds like operators have quite a few issues to um, balance in this period, Greg. Thank you. A question for the both of you. Do you have any final thoughts for us? Yes. Well, despite the current crisis, the industry and its supply chain still has a future for at least our lifetimes. And the ISCs and NOCs can't ignore the fact that hydrocarbons are still very much part of the mix, particularly um, in emergent economies. So while there is still considerable focus now on the energy transition, these corporations need to maintain their legacy oil and gas business, and that has to be with the support of a resilient supply chain. I, I agree with that, Emma. I think the, the market is clearly consolidating, but it's not a simple scenario of there now being fewer players but playing the same game. The market is moving to new contracting models, as we just said there's an increased focus on ESG, uh, strategic alliancing is coming to the fore. We don't know if that's going to be a long-term shift, but my guess is it will be. Thank you, Emma and Craig, for your time today and, and to everyone for listening. Uh, for those interested, we have also penned a brief article on this subject, which you can find below this podcast link. Thank you.